This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. It's good to be with you and just still settling in very much. I'm going to be in Ruth 1, so you're welcome to turn there. But so thankful for God's work of grace and what he has done um, in my life and my family's life and what he's doing at Grace Baptist Church. So it's good to open the word with you this morning. While the trend in education seems to be going more and more the way of the Internet so that many take online courses, you're in a position, uh, you've put yourself in a position not only to receive instruction directly in person during your classes, but also to be mentored as students. Uh, Some today have no choice regarding the mode of their education. They take what they can get, and they cannot get on site, and so they do online. But you're here in person. And that's a privilege. That's a, that's a wonderful opportunity for you. Uh, some of the clearest and most enduring lessons I learned during seminary were after the lecture was done. Um, my professors really s- shaped my life in many ways. Uh, but seminary days are not easy. The pressures don't simply come just from school. And you're finding that as the years go by. Uh, God in his perfect wisdom decides to bring things into your life from outside the walls of the school. And so some days you show up and your heart is pretty heavy with the pressures of life. Times of trouble come to all of us, and, and you've made the exciting and maybe scary choice to attend seminary. You believed it was a good choice, but perhaps you wonder whether all of this is really necessary. Then when the trouble comes along, perhaps your question, your questioning only intensifies at that time. The message of Ruth is truly a timeless message. We want to see the bigger picture of our lives. We want to see how everything connects. We want to see where's the meaning in what I am facing. Why do we have to experience different forms of hardship? How, how, why do I have to do these tedious things today? I don't see how they have any value ten, 10 years from now. We want to know what God is doing, but often we don't. And this is where the message of Ruth is so powerful. The book of Ruth, I think, shows us a beautiful glimpse of God's providence. It's just a short very short window into what God does, the kinds of things that he does among his people. He's always working to accomplish his plan. We we can be assured of this, and if you're here this morning, you're probably rock solid on that truth. But we don't always see how things connect in our lives personally. Seeing what God brings about in Naomi's life and through her daughter-in-law, Ruth, we're able to learn more about how God is working among his people. He had matters in hand during Naomi's life, and his sovereignty is working in the events surrounding your life as well. When we first meet Naomi in this book, she's married. She has two sons. By the end of the first chapter, those three men are dead. She's returned to Bethlehem with only a stubborn Moabite daughter-in-law after spending 10 years in Moab. It's hardly a, a victorious welcome. Naomi has no idea what God has in store for her and Ruth. And in fact, even during her lifetime, she never comes to see the wonderful blessing of what follows after her, that through her line comes David and eventually comes Jesus Christ. She never sees that during her life. But God is still working. God calls on his people to trust in him as he leads them through such difficult times as what she had to experience. So Naomi had a terrible stretch of time in, in Moab. It probably wasn't all bad. Uh, it began and ended with death, it seems. 
But even as she talks with her two daughters-in-law, it seems the relationships there are good. So there were probably some good times that she had there. But it was terrible in other ways. This story shows us that believers have have had to face times of suffering. They've had to be confronted with the task of trusting in God's providence, even if that means believing that God in his wisdom has allowed terrible things to happen to them. And so we can learn from her example. I think in Ruth 1, though, narrowing down a little bit, the theme is trusting in God's providence means accepting times of suffering from his hand. Naomi doesn't do this exactly well. She doesn't pass with flying colors. But I think that's a lesson we can take away from Ruth 1. Trusting in God's providence means accepting times of suffering from his hand. We have the advantage that Naomi didn't have. We can step back and see the bigger picture. She couldn't. But how similar is that to our lives right now? We can't step back and see the bigger picture of what God is going to do and what he's brought into your life in his sovereignty and in his providence right now. So my goal is to come back to that theme at the end of our time to share some principles from this passage regarding God's sovereignty, regarding his providence and suffering. But first, let's just go through uh, kind of four chunks of this paragraph. So we're going to look at an unexpected destination first in the first five verses. Ruth 1, 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the first The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is an unexpected destination. She didn't expect to finish her time there with the three men dead. When God brought a famine to the land of Israel during the time of the judges, a certain family here decides to go to Moab. They left a place that normally had good sources of food. Bethlehem, house of bread. They went to be a strangers in a foreign land. And maybe strangers had some protections, but they weren't exactly going to an easy life in a foreign land. They were still outsiders there. Why Moab? Well, apparently from Bethlehem, it was possibly to see that country. It was nearby, maybe 50 miles away or so. And even though it was that close, you know, God in his wisdom and his choices, he brought a famine to Israel doesn't say that he brought it to Moab, but also just the terrain there would allow for sometimes you get rain in one section, not rain in another. So it's very possible they could see that land. They'd heard that things were better there. They decided to go. Moab had not been a friendly nation to Israel. The conflict between these two nations was deeply entrenched, and and I'm sure you know some of that history, but off to Moab they go. We're not told the specific time frame of the events, but it seems that Elimelech died at the beginning. And then these two sons marry, and towards the end of that ten years, both of those sons die, and as they die, they die childless. So now things are ending very terribly. Naomi is an outsider in a country that has not been friendly with Israel, with only foreign daughters-in-law, no husband, no sons, no grandchildren. It's safe to say Naomi had not planned to end like this in her time in Moab. Whatever she thought it would go like, it was not like this. By this time, surely she should have had some grandchildren to rejoice in. 
Instead, she buried three men in a foreign land. Uh, Do any of us plan such deep loss? Certainly not. We know that it can happen. We're aware of it. Maybe we hear of others going through it. But when suffering comes, it still surprises us, catches us off guard, especially suffering to this extent. Now we have a window into her grief as we come to the next section, verses 6 down through 14. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait? So they were grown. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So here we see a broken plea. Naomi starts to return to Israel. These two ladies start on that journey with her, and sometime during that journey, Naomi starts to plead with these other women to turn back to their homeland. And the cause of Naomi coming back is listed in verse 6. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, the Hebrew word for return in this chapter occurs often, shub. But repeatedly, this word comes up in this, in this first act of the book. And this is a significant term. Years later, the prophet Amos said to the northern kingdom in Amos 4, 6 to 8, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. There's our word again. Cleanness of teeth here is a bad thing because it signified not having food. So I gave you this famine. I gave you the lack of food, the lack of bread, but you didn't return to me. It goes on. I also withheld the rain from you when you were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on the other city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. It's certainly shown in the Old Testament that at some points God brought famine to his people. Why? So that they would turn back to him. You can go back and search out Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 3. Same idea there. As God would bring such times, he was looking for his people to turn back, to return to him. I truly believe that Naomi was not simply returning to her land. She was returning to her God. Perhaps she had not turned completely from him in Moab. And and in fact, I think the chapter shows that. But these steps that she is taking to go back to Bethlehem are significant for her and certainly painful as well. Even as she takes them, there's a foundation of faith in Naomi's life. She's viewing life from that foundation of faith even though we do see signs of struggle within her. So her faith is not perfect here. Her choices and her words are not perfect. But I think these steps she she is taking are theologically significant. As the women travel to Israel, 
Naomi has some weighty things to say to her two daughters-in-law. Simply put, she tells them, turn back. Go return each of you to her mother's house. But she doesn't simply drive them off. She does so with a blessing. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now this blessing, in this blessing, she brings up a significant theological word, hesed. She believes that such a blessing is right because these ladies have shown her kindness and not only shown her that, but have shown their husbands. They have shown the steadfast, loyal love, the kind of favor that is consistent and dependable. We should be encouraged that Naomi desires for God to show such care to these two women. She rightly understands that such a blessing is ultimately up to God, and she believes that God does show such love to his people. She doesn't believe that she's receiving it, but she does believe that God. she, she pleads for God to show it to these ladies. As we continue in the passage, we see more of what she has in mind with this blessing. She wants them to find rest. And by rest, she specifically means marriage. So as she completes her blessing, she, the, the women come together. They, they have a cry session together. Uh, the relationship must have been good. Like I said, the parting was not easy. But her two daughters-in-law are not pushovers either. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So they're not listening to this, and they want to stay with her. What does Naomi do? She makes it very clear she can't provide husbands for them. And uh, to make matters short here, an explanation, she's probably at least around the age of 50, beyond normal childbearing age. She does not see any way, realistically speaking, that she can provide them with husbands. And so she wants them to go back to a land where they can find husbands and find that rest that she has in mind. Basically, by these words, she's showing that she's given up on the idea of grandchildren. She doesn't see that happening, and she wants what's best, she thinks, for these two women. Do we agree with her conclusion that it's better for these ladies to go back to Moab? Well, No, but let's try to understand Naomi a little bit here. Verse 13, I think, is very important. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She does believe that God is in control. Things are warped in her mind, but she does believe that God is in control. And in fact, she goes a step further and says that the suffering she's experiencing is from God. This statement is amazingly similar, sounds very similar to Job's, Job's statement in Job 19.21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. <coughs> These are expressions from hearts that are grieving and that are hurting and that don't understand what is happening to them, but that believe that God is in control. Hearts experiencing deep suffering. So you have this mixture of emotions and beliefs all going on. The, the book, as it continues, sufficiently shows that God is not against Naomi. She's come to a wrong conclusion, but we don't want to miss the pain and grief that, that her statement reveals. This widow and mother was deeply hurting. Her faith was still in place, mostly, and she desired good for others, but she shows no hope in God being kind towards her. I think the best word to use to describe her is resigned. This is, this is, we could almost use the word fate here. This is just how it's going to go with her. After another crying session, Orpah leaves. She's never heard from again. Ruth clings. And in a statement she now makes, 
uh, in just a little bit, effectively ends the discussion between her and Naomi. So we get to the third section here, a tenacious confession. Uh, Naomi has sufficiently scared off, pushed off Orpah. So she sets her gaze on Ruth alone. She hones in and she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, some of this is understandable. She said these things before. But it seems like Naomi goes an extra step here as she says, back to her people and to her gods. Is Naomi really chasing somebody back to false worship? What is going on in her head that she would do this? And again, I think this is where verse 13 is significant. Naomi actually thought that doing so, pushing her back to Moab, was better for Ruth than staying around her since God was against her. Now, this is not right thinking, but maybe we can at least follow Naomi's reasoning. She didn't want to bring any more pain to the lives of these two women. Right or wrong, she's feeling responsible for these women. She wants a better life for them. And she was, she was wrong in some of this thinking. God was not against her, but she doesn't want them to feel what she is feeling. It's almost like she sees herself as a lightning rod. Anybody touching her is going to get zapped. So leave me. Even to the extent that she pushes them back to false gods. It's startling, but that shows us the depth of her suffering. God doesn't give Naomi reasons here for why she had to experience this loss. He does have a blessing for her in what follows, though. And we see in Ruth's response one of the best confessions of faith in the Old Testament. She stops Naomi's plea. The conversation is over. And the core of what Ruth says, really the central part of this statement, is your people shall be my people and your God my God. Whatever can be said about Naomi's faith, Ruth still saw her as worshiping the true God. And so she says, your God will be my God. There's more there that we don't know. But now she is making this statement of trust in the true God. And really this connection to Naomi that will filter down through all aspects of life as she is declaring her faithfulness to her as well. She will stick with her. This is an important part, I think, of the book, of the theme of the book. These four short chapters show the kindness and steadfast, loyal love of Ruth and Leir Boaz. And much of God's care of Naomi is wrapped up in how these two believers treat her. God looks for his people to be willing to love others who at times are unlovely. And Ruth shows that love here. God's steadfast love, I think, is often delivered through the acts of his people. And, and we see that exemplified here through Ruth. So that's tenacious confession. Then we get to an empty return in verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So after this intense conversation, these two ladies return to Bethlehem, and their arrival is, of course, noticed. This is something to talk about. Naomi's returned. She's alone, except for this Moabite daughter-in-law. And 
in Naomi's reaction to the interest in her, we see more of her heart yet. First, she calls for a name change. Don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. If they had any question about how Naomi was doing, this is the answer to that. Her life is bitter, and God is the one who has made it so. At least that's her message. He's been a witness against her. He's the one who's brought trouble upon her. Once again, though, her theology is a mixture of right statements and wrong. Who would stand against Naomi and say that her life is not bitter? Who would make that charge? She's lost the three men in her life. But was she truly empty? Maybe almost so, humanly speaking. But she was not empty as she saw. Her life was not hopeless. God had brought back a Moabite convert with her. God had not brought her back empty. And she did bury these three loved ones in Moab. She left behind a loving daughter-in-law as well. But she was not empty. We're left with questions about Naomi. The chapter concludes with an interesting statement. The return coincided with barley harvest from a human perspective. Perhaps this was planned. Perhaps it wasn't. But we know, of course, God is in control of all things. And they were going to be cared for through the harvest. So I'd like to draw some conclusions here. That's just a really quick walkthrough. I had to cut things out from my Sunday morning sermon, and that hurt me. But hopefully that's to your benefit. (laughs) So let's draw some conclusions here. Trusting in God's providence means accepting times of suffering from his hand. I think it's safe to say even the strongest believers falter at times while going through extreme times of suffering. If you've known somebody like that, they wrestle with deep matters of faith. Job is probably the best example in the Old Testament of that. As we read earlier, even he believed that God was against him in some way, and his faith in God was strong. So in Naomi's blurred vision of the world around her, she almost missed the faith that was present in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She tries to push away somebody who is committed to being faithful to her and to the true God. Because of her pain and how she was handling that pain, she had a very compromised view of God. She had a very compromised view of God's actions towards her. In times of suffering, let's consider just four brief principles that can help us accept times of suffering from God's hand. The glorious thing is that already in this story, God did not back away. He did not allow Naomi to get what she wanted in the moment. What did she want? She wanted to be left alone. No more pain. Nobody close to me. That way I alone get hurt. She wanted to be left alone. God gave her Ruth. The tremendous truth here is that God does not back away from his hurting people. And this is a glorious picture of that. God does not back away from his hurting people. Uh, Her faith, Naomi's faith was imperfect. That's not good, but the reality is that we often draw conclusions about life that are wrong as we go through difficult times especially. The pressure intensifies We're trying to make sense because we're meaning finders. We go out and we try to find the meaning in what is taking place, and we draw conclusions, some that are helpful and biblical and others that we should not draw. God God continues to show his steadfast love towards this broken child of his. God knew what Naomi needed. The truth from there, God knows what his people need. His way is best. And so he is putting people into her life in a way that that in the end will dramatically turn things around. 
Are you in pain? Has the suffering in this life been too intense for too long? Perhaps you've identified what you need now. At least you think. Just a word of caution that we should be careful. God knows what we need. If anything, trust your view of life as you go through suffering even less. Instead, trust in the God who sees all, who knows all, and is in every way and in every step faithful towards his own. The message is not to trust ourselves. The message is to trust in God. And then lastly, even though Naomi's view of life needed correction, by God's grace she was repenting, I I believe, at least in part, she was turning back to the land of Israel. That's a significant step for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Go back to the land. Go back to your God. In her weakness, in her broken ways, she's returning to God. And and the truth here to tr- that I'd like to bring out is it's always right to return to God. It's always right to cling to God. Was her thinking perfect? No. Then by all means, return to God. See, I, I think especially in this crowd, most of us are probably perfectionists in some way. And if you're not, you're wondering why your professors are such perfectionists as you work through that. And so we think that in order for us to start repenting sometimes, we need to have all our ducks lined up. It has to look perfect. I need to know all the steps involved. Naomi's life, her her mind was in a state of confusion, of grieving, of loss, of hurt. So her choices weren't all good here. Her words were not all good. But she's taking steps to return to the land. She's taking steps to return to her God. It's always right to return to God. It's always right to to repent it's not pretty sometimes in fact it's downright ugly sometimes but it's always right to return to god trust in god's providence and that means that we must be ready to accept times of suffering from his hand let's pray god thank you for the old testament such treasures here examples of lives that were imperfect as we are reminded of our own sin we see uh, sinful thinking sinful choices on the part of others but how wonderful it is to see your actions your character through these stories as well thank you that you are working in every facet of our lives your providence is not to be questioned you will achieve your plan you will bring glory to yourself you will show steadfast love to your people Thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.